You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. So my guest today is Dr Imran Kosser. Imran was born and brought up in Glasgow and currently lives in London. He trained as a medical doctor but has also worked in finance and the pharmaceutical industry. However, he has always had an entrepreneurial streak and a sharp business acumen. Imran founded the first halal food festival in the UK and launched a business with products in the main supermarkets and retails across the country. So Imran, welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me on. Wa alaikum salam. So your most recent venture is the halal food range Haloudis. Tell us, are you a good cook yourself, Imran? <laughs> I like to think I'm an excellent cook. My wife might disagree, though, but uh, you know, I've, I think when I was a single man living on my own, I was a lot better at it. These days, perhaps I'm less good. And do you have a signature dish? Well, that's a good question. Um, I probably do, uh, but I haven't cooked it in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so the name Haloudis comes from the words halal foodies. Um, how did the idea of Haloudis come about? So the, the genesis of, of Haloudis started actually when I was in Glasgow, just before I actually started university. And, and, and it kind of grew from uh, this issue that as Muslims in Scotland and indeed at any point in the UK at the time, back in the early to mid 90s, there were probably only two obvious features that that showed us as Muslims. One was the mosque, where it looked like a mosque. Anybody could see that's a mosque. Muslims pray there. And the other was the halal meat shop, because it said clearly halal on the outside and people knew this is where Muslims want. The problem was most halal meat shops back then, and I don't think much has changed really, uh, looked pretty terrible. They They didn't look particularly hygienic. There didn't seem to be an emphasis of quality. And what bothered me about that was that as a young man defining my own identity, Islam was a beautiful thing. It's a pure thing. It's it's one of God's best creations. And yet here is this butcher shop, which we only do because God asked us to do it, but it looks terrible. And for anybody that's not a Muslim, which obviously in Glasgow is most people, could only look at this and come to one conclusion, which is that their God or their faith has told them to make halal like this. And that bothered me a lot. So as a young man growing up in Glasgow, I thought, well, hang on, surely things can be better than this. Why does halal look so bad? And that led me to understanding more about halal. And since that time, that's kind of, I've learned so much about the halal meat industry. It uncovered so many issues and problems that I thought actually the only way to solve this is to create a brand and to fix those problems through a brand. And that's where Haludis was born. And in recent years, we've heard a lot about these halal meat scandals. And we often get messages about, you know, is this restaurant really halal or not? Um, do you think there are real problems and issues within the whole industry? Unquestionably. I think a lot of us go around with a relatively simplistic view of halal because actually, if it's unless it's your business, you have to take somebody else's word. If somebody says it's halal, by and large, in most instances, you'll accept it, partly because we believe it's the, the onus is and the person who's delivering halal to us, to be truthful, and so we take their word for it. And secondly, because actually we're also busy. How much can you go around finding out about everything in the world. So as a result of that, two things have happened. One, demand of halal has gone up, but the supply hasn't always been there, which has meant that fraud has come into the system. And that's not unique to halal. We've seen that in other places. Another problem that's come up is that 
when there is so much halal around, actually who's monitoring the quality of it and what is the quality of halal? So from restaurants that have been caught selling non-halal products or at worst products which are absolutely haram, not permissible at all, that's, not, that's been a frequent occurrence that we've seen. And secondly, well, what are we going to feed our children? I mean, if, if we're happy to accept this status quo, knowing things aren't quite right, why are we happy as a community to leave things at that? And what about our children? What are they going to have? So all these things led me to think that actually there's, there's definitely a need to improve things. And there seems to be a whole emphasis even within Islam and halal about, I guess it's not just the rigid rules, but also the barakah that is in the food as well. And has that been something that you know is important in Haludis? Tremendously. So, so Haludis Halal Foodies has taken a view that halal is not just the point of slaughter. And for a lot of Muslims in the UK and, and indeed in other parts of the world, we get stuck on literally just how was the animal slaughtered? Was it stunned? Was it not stunned? Was it hand slaughtered? Was it mechanically slaughtered? But that those few seconds of slaughter seem to occupy the bulk of our time. Actually, halal is much broader than that. And just not just looking through the Quran, but the Hadith, we need to think about halal in terms of the quality of, the re- of what we eat, the frequency with which we eat, the impact on sustainability, the impact on the environment, the impact on fair wages. Are people who produce this getting paid well enough? Obviously, the welfare of the animal is a crucial thing. And then also things like, well, how can we eat when our neighbors are starving? Actually, these are all halal concepts as well. They fall under that umbrella. And there's plenty of examples littered around the hadith where actually if you look at it from the, a step backwards, as Muslims, we're actually not in a great place. After all, can you tell me what is the Islamic perspective on Islamic on, on intensive farming? What is the Islamic perspective on modi- genetically modified organisms? We're left adrift all of a sudden when the food industry is moving at a pace and we suddenly just seem to be catching up all the time or trying to make fatwas or conclusions when actually the horse is bolted. It's too late to make these things. So we as a community need to take a much broader view on halal and then state our position and make sure that if things are important to us, then we should be doing them for us. And so it sounds like you're taking a lot more of a broader approach and a more holistic approach to this whole area and I guess trying to think through the purpose and the the meaning behind a lot of this? Absolutely. So my father always wonders why I left a medical career to sell chicken or sell meats. And, and I have to explain to him sometimes that actually this is actually nothing to do with selling meat. What this is about is at, at best public health, because if we're not thinking about what we eat and how we eat it, there'll be, uh, there'll be impacts on ourselves as, as individuals, both in terms of health, in terms of well-being but also in terms of, well, what do we want halal to be? Because as Muslims, we've made tremendous strides in the UK. Since the Muslim community came here back in the, in the 60s and 70s, and before then even, we've grown. And, and initially, for communities and for people that remember, it was a subsistence community. Just access to halal was a big thing, let alone widespread access. So you didn't really complain about the, the quality of your halal. Just getting halal in itself was a big thing. Now, 2017, 3 million plus Muslims in the UK, we're a strong economic force, but we haven't asserted ourselves. And so for us, we need to think a lot more actually, what do we want halal to look like today? It doesn't meet our needs, and will it meet our needs in the future? And that's where Haludis wants to come in as a brand to say, actually, it's not about just getting halal. Actually, for someone to tell you a product is halal is easy. Most places claim to have halal food. What we want to say is now we want to set a standard for halal that actually looks at welfare, it looks at all the problems that have existed in halal and tries to fix them and tries to fix them so that one day if you're a, a supermarket and you want to supply halal you can have credibility in a brand like ours because we do things properly 
And fundamentally, if you're a customer and you want to have you want to have trust in what you're eating, then then we're the brand that can answer those questions because there's a lot of issues with halal. So, what sort of products have you you know released and are you selling? And have you, has there been a lot of trial and error in terms of what sort of products to put out in the market? So here's the interesting thing: we launched our very first products and the brand, indeed, in March 2014. Seems like a long, long time ago now. So back in March 2014, in the UK, it was not possible to buy pre-packed halal fresh meat. Halal meat, fresh halal meat, raw halal meat is what you bought at the independent butcher store. Everybody knows their local two or three butcher shops in their area, the ones that they trust, and about 80 to 90% of halal meat is, is purchased there. When we came in, we said actually that the younger consumer, that what we call the millennial Muslim, which is our target customer base, effectively those born in 1980s onwards, which actually excludes myself and you, um, that consumer group has had a lot of investment by their families into education. Okay, so their parents typically came from India, Pakistan, wherever, into the UK, and they, they left a lot of opportunities behind. But they invested in their children, typically through education, making sure that the children went to school, university, came out with good degrees, and and this happened at a wholesale level. This happened across our community, and what suddenly happened was there's a brand new middle class. So come 2000, etc., the year 2000, a lot of these guys were graduating from university and entering the workforce in professional capacity, whether it was in IT, whether it was in finance, in accounting, in medicine, in, in, in the legal services. We created a whole new middle class and they had issues because suddenly they had more money than their parents had. They were interested in quality. Instead of driving a Toyota, they wanted to drive a BMW or Mercedes. Instead of holidaying back in their parents' homeland, they wanted to go further afield. Instead of eating in Indian restaurants, they wanted to try other cuisines. So they had a completely different perspective. And amongst those issues that they faced was, we want to buy good quality halal, but actually I don't trust my butcher anymore. I know my mum's been going there for 20 years, but I'm not sure because the quality doesn't look great. And I'm used to paying for quality and I want it. So in March 2014, when we went to Ocado, we said, look, pre-packed halal meat, we think the consumers want this. We explained the numbers and they said, yeah, we'll take this in an instant. It helped that the founders of Avocado are actually from the Jewish faith. So they understood kosher very well and they had a limited kosher range, but they were very receptive to introducing a halal range. So we were the first pre-packed halal meat ever in the UK um, and we launched in Avocado. And then shortly after that, we launched in Harrods. And again, this was a raw meat range. This was raw chicken, raw beef and raw lamb. But the difference that we had, apart from the fact that it was pre-packed and convenient, is that we had very strong relationships with the abattoirs. We had very strong relationships with the farms where this product came from. So we understood to make sure that the product quality was of a high level. And as a result, we got it. Now, what happened to us was that a few months after we launched, our competitor launched under the brand Shazam's and, and also another sub-brand called National Halal. Yep. So the owner of those two brands is a Sikh gentleman. Really? And, and and so we didn't feel that actually it's appropriate for a Sikh to be selling halal meat because fundamentally this is a religious obligation and it's best served by those of the faith. His strength was in poultry production. And so he acquired a company called Shazans and then took on the national halal brand. And he said they're under my banner now. And he sold them into the supermarkets where he already had very strong relationships. His company is one of the, the UK's largest food producers. So we said to Tesco's and Sainsbury's, etc., well, why are you doing that? Because, you know, this, is, this doesn't feel authentic to us. Muslims will assume it's a Muslim-owned company. And certainly from the promotional material, they'll use the company family that originally owned Shazans, who used to make uh, frozen samosas, etc. So people will be familiar with the brand, with those products. 
And they said, well, it's because this guy can actually deliver the product in and very few companies can otherwise do that. So we said, well, we don't feel that's being open with the consumer. In, in a time of trust and transparency, we feel this is going against that. However, they'd made the deal and therefore we were blocked from entering those supermarkets and they still exist today. However, we're working hard to try and change that. Okay. Now, you didn't start in the catering industry um, and we, we got to know each other well in university but you probably don't remember, we first met in 1988 at the Glasgow Garden Festival uh, when we sang the Pakistan National Anthem. And I remember being forced by my mum uh, to go to rehearsals. And um, uh, But you, you grew up in a very much a household full of Pakistani art, culture, poetry, mainly through your father, Dr. Goss, who's a real pillar of the Glasgow community. Mm. Um, and did you naturally take on some of your father's passions and creativity growing up, or were you a reluctant young Scottish boy who found that difficult? And <laughs> what are the oldies talking about? Because I'm sure a lot of people would have been visiting the house and yep. poetry and stuff. Yeah, no. So, so Dad obviously has had a significant influence, not just to me, but on my siblings as well. And uh, there's no doubt that a lot of his work, his interests, his passions have affected all of us positively. Um, Dad's interest was in art and literature, in addition to, of course, medicine, which was like the day job. Um, and so inevitably a lot of that imbibed into all of us and, and we have a strong interest. I'd probably say, I mean, I left Glasgow in 2000, so shortly after I graduated from, from medical school and um, I was probably, I think, what, 24 or 25 at the time. So I think my interest in arts and literature wasn't so strong at that time. It was certainly there, but it wasn't as strong now whatever, 15 years on, um, it's significantly stronger and, and, and certainly I have a strong passion for that. And not just Pakistani art and culture, but actually art and culture from around the world. So your yeah, dad's influence has been profound. And so we're going to send you on this desert island. Mm -hmm. And so tell us about the first piece that you've chosen to take with you. So, well, thank you very much for selecting me to, to be cast away. I think it's, uh, it's always a bit odd when somebody wants to do that to you, but thanks for doing that. <laughs> I must have had quite an impact back in 1988. <laughs> And so I think that the first thing I'd like to take with me is um, uh, is the first few ayahs from Surah Baqarah. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألف لامين ذلك الكتاب لا ريب فيه هدى للمتقين الذين يؤمنون بالغيب ويقيمون الصلاة ومما رزقناهم ينفقون والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك وبالآخرة هم يوقنون 
The reason why I'm, I'm taking this surah with me onto the desert island is because there's a lot of memory associated with these first few surahs, and so we've got to rewind back time to probably, I'd guess, this must be the late 80s, perhaps around about the time we met, if not a little bit before then. Uh, so obviously living in Glasgow, used to go to Glasgow Academy at the time in the west end of Glasgow, very close to my father's practice. And I'd, I'd go to the mosque uh, on Oakfield Avenue, a mosque I visited many times before I left Glasgow because uh, it was the university mosque as well. And, and the imam at the mosque at the time would, would, of course, teach Quran to the children. And so I'd go there after school from my dad's practice. And I struggled with Arabic, with, with learning it a lot. And, um, and I think that's had an influence on my life generally in terms of how I interact with my faith. Uh, but certainly a key memory for me is that the imam wouldn't let me progress until he felt I was good enough, which for me meant I'd have to repeat Surah Baqarah lots of times, particularly the first few ayahs. And it got to the point where I, he wouldn't let me proceed, and so I'd read the first few ayahs so many times, I knew them off by heart, as well as I knew Surah Fatih, which obviously everybody has to know. But the real memory of, of why I want to take this with, with me is because at that time my parents had just divorced. And of course, in the late 80s, in a Pakistani community in Glasgow, divorce still wasn't that common. And um, at the time, my three sisters had, and my mum had gone to live in Pakistan, so I was living alone with my father in Glasgow. So it was a, a time of a lot of turbulence from a family point of view. And, and I think perhaps that affected my interest in learning or my ability to concentrate at the time. So whenever I read now the first few verses of, of Surah Baqarah, I know them automatically. But also it reminds me of that time of kind of adjusting to a new type of life, adjusting to a life without my, my siblings. I was six or seven when, when my parents separated. And so, so this surah, albeit it has uh, a strength as a surah in itself, because it's the opening of the Quran and of course where we start learning so much about it. But actually for me, it reminds me of a time of a lot of uh, turbulence in my personal life as a youngster. And looking back at it, was it quite a difficult time for you? Enormous. Truth be told, I think a lot of it I've blocked out. Simply because when I was quite young, secondly, you become distracted. And, and Dad obviously was aware that he didn't want it to impact me. So he made sure that I remained busy with school activities or extracurricular activities. And as you mentioned, Dad's always been a pillar of Glasgow society. So there were always extracurricular things going on even back then. So I think um, as I've grown older and reflected back in my life, I think about that period. I've had the chance to speak to my parents and siblings to understand what it was like for them and to get a broader understanding, particularly now that I'm married and have kids as well. And how long was that period for that you, was just you and your dad? I, I think it was about two or three years, probably the best part of three okay. years actually. So yeah, so from about six, seven till about nine, ten. Because you're the only boy amongst many sisters. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what was that like? Were you quite protective of your sisters? Well, again, so they, they were apart from me for five years. When they so, came back? So when they came back, life was a bit different then because in that time my father had remarried. And, uh, and, and so when my sisters returned back to Glasgow, they were living close to us, but not in the same household as us. And by that time, obviously, we'd all grown up at, by four or five years. And so we actually had to reestablish those relationships. These are formative years and we'd been apart. Yes, we'd visit regularly throughout the year, you know, trips to Pakistan a few times a year at least. Um, so it wasn't as if we were not in touch, we were, but you, you grow so much as, a, as, a, as an individual in those ages. And so when they came back, we actually redeveloped relationships as friends. 
And so, I, you know, my relationships with all my sisters, alhamdulillah, is very, very strong because of that. So, it, yes, obviously protective of them, but actually I view them differently as well because they've experienced their loss. And so the fact that they came back is a big thing. And so our, our, the basis of our relationship has been on the basis of actually we know what it's like to lose one another. We don't want to do that again. So let's make sure that we solve issues. And yeah, we have all the usual issues that siblings have, but we have a lot of respect for each other. Because it, it links in actually with one of my memories of when we got to know each other at university. And um, um, and I remember that you knew, I think one of your sisters had a minor car accident um, and I think it was in a reasonably new car mm-hmm. and uh, we were together and I think you got the phone call and I thought you were going to blow your top. I thought you were going to get angry and I thought, you know, it's a brand new car and something's happened to it. But you are quite calm and I remember the first thing you asked is, are you okay? Don't worry about it. And then you left and then just went and sorted it all out. Mm. And um, and I guess that that's where I was thinking perhaps that whole relationship with the sister because I guess it also perhaps that expectation of being the man of the house as well in terms of, you know, the, the only male within that sort of environment as well, you know, perhaps took on some of that responsibility. Yeah, but, but very possible. You're bringing back memories now. It's been such a long time since I've even thought of that episode. Yeah, Sana, the sister involved, uh, who was also a medic at the time, a year ahead of me at the time. Um, so Sana and I were then and still are very close. She now lives in Dubai with her family. Uh, but yeah, she... she, she she was involved in this accident, alhamdulillah, she wasn't hurt. The car was quite badly damaged at the time. Um, and in fact, I think part of the reason why that event unfolded as it did was because, if I recall, not many months before that, I'd been involved in quite a bad car accident where the car had been written off completely. And this was the new car to replace it. Now, a few months on, she'd had an accident in this new car. So the emphasis on making... So I understood what it's like to go through an accident so recently. So that's why... The, the status of the car wasn't of interest to me. The status of her was far more important. And a lot of the, your siblings, you've all done very well. And I mean, was there always an emphasis on education and to achieve and to maximise your potential in, when you were growing up? Hugely. So clearly dad's position as a, as a, a GP, and a prominent GP in Glasgow, um, had an influence on in all of us. So therefore education was something that was naturally important to the family. Uh, it didn't have to be medicine. It turned out that myself and my sister did happen to follow medical careers, but other siblings didn't. Um, but Dad always made sure that the, we understood the importance of education, not just as a vehicle to to giving you a, a professional satisfaction or an income, but actually as a methodology for your life. And I remember when we were at university, um, Dad, of course, who had finished his postgraduate exams and diplomas many, many, many years before that, but he decided to do one just to show that education is a lifelong thing and not just something you do at a point in time. So he took on an extra diploma to do at the time uh, while we were at university doing our work. Just So his perspective on education as a lifelong process is something that has stuck with us through, not just with myself, but with my siblings as well. Tell us about your next item, Imran. So as a castaway on the island and, and reflecting over this, um, I think one one dedication that I've read which had a profound impact on me was on the opening pages of uh, Muhammad Asad's The Message of the Qur'an. Uh, so, like I said, I struggled with Arabic. I managed to finish the Qur'an finally in Arabic. But after that, I preferred always to read it in English because I wanted to know what I was reading. I wanted to understand it. And it's such a glorious book. This, with all the benefits of reading in Arabic, actually, I didn't understand it. And so I'd been through what was, at that time, the most commonly read um, uh, translations of the Quran, Mahmudic Pickthalls and, and, and Yusuf Ali's 
Uh, and then a, a close friend of ours, uh, Majid Anwar, Dr. Majid Anwar, um, uh, passed me a copy of Muhammad Asad's The Message of the Quran. And I hadn't seen this tr translation before at the time. And I picked up this large book and I, I flicked through the first few pages. And the front it said, for the people who think. So as a castaway on the island and, and reflecting over this, um, I, I think one, one dedication that I've read, which had a profound impact on me, was on the opening pages of uh, Muhammad Asad's The Message of the Quran. Uh, so, like I said, I struggled with Arabic. I managed to finish the Quran finally in Arabic. But after that, I preferred always to read it in English because I wanted to know what I was reading. I wanted to understand it. And it's such a glorious book. Just with all the benefits of reading in Arabic, actually, I didn't understand it. And so I'd been through what was, at that time, the most commonly read um, uh, translations of the Quran, Marmaduke Pickthalls and, and, and Yusuf Ali's. Uh, and then a, a close friend of ours, uh, Majid Anwar, Dr. Majid Anwar, um, uh, passed me a copy of Muhammad Asad's The Message of the Quran. And I hadn't seen this tr translation before at the time. And I picked up this large book and I, I flicked through the first few pages. And the front it said, for the people who think. That dedication before the start of the, the actual translation itself struck me because as a young man at the time, just starting university by this point, and, pick, and, and you know, really wanting to understand the Qur'an a lot more, as many youngsters do at that age and, and at that stage in life. Here was this translation of the Qur'an, a book that now, by this point, wasn't, it wasn't new to me. Obviously, I knew what was in there. But Muhammad Asad's translation of it was quite unique, and his focus on for people who think meant that there were actually some people who read this Qur'an without thinking, without actually taking time to ponder, consider, and understand it in its entirety. And here was a man who'd taken the same book and looked at it from a completely different perspective and was offering us this translation, translation for the people who think. And that notion that actually we shouldn't just observe and consume, we should actually take time to understand what we're seeing, reading, not just in terms of Quranic knowledge, but all knowledge and activities is something that which has stayed with me throughout. So Muhammad Asad's um, uh, message of the Quran is something I'd like to have with me, but also that specific one with the dedication for the people who think. So around that time you went on to study medicine um, and qualify as a doctor from Glasgow University. Had you always wanted to study medicine? No, I hadn't. Uh, and my father uh, said to me, don't do it, son, go and do other things. Uh, medicine, I think, as a profession was changing even back then. Uh, and although I'd lived and, and seen everybody being so um, positive towards my father, so respectful towards, and he had a really strong status in the community, you couldn't forget that as a kid of his. People, I remember once at university, somebody stopped me in the street. I was walking down Sakyal Street, having left the campus, heading into, into town, and this random elderly Asian gentleman stopped me in the street, and I, I didn't recognize him at all. And he said to me, are you Dr. Koster's son? I'm kind of like, but obviously he knows I am, so I couldn't deny that. So I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And he said, alhamdulillah, I said, your father is an angel. And he said, you must come with me and have lunch. Gosh. And I was planning to meet someone. Yeah. And we were on Sakyal Street at the, the kind of the West End part of it. Uh, and, uh, and he said, my, ha my house is just here. It was one of the flats. He said, you must come meet my wife and have lunch. And I said, uncle, I'm really sorry. I'm meeting someone. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. And obviously, 
you can't it, you can't decline hospitality. It's not within our culture. So I went with him up two flights or whatever into his his little apartment, and uh, his his lovely wife was there, another elderly lady, and they'd had a, a simple lunch. And they sat me down, and I, I and I ate with them. And the, the, this man went on to tell me about how much my father had helped him and his wife, obviously without going into any specifics or details. But the, 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 kind of the sentiment that he left me with was how much of a positive impact dad had had as a physician on their lives. And that was not a unique story. You know, this happened many times. So the, the, the impact that a physician as a GP could have on individuals was there. And, but despite all of that, dad said, look, don't do medicine. Now, like I said, Sana, my sister, was a year ahead of me and she'd already started medical school and she was coming back with great stories of the lectures and, of course, dissection, uh, which was a, a prominent part of the early years of medical school. And I thought to myself, well, economics, which was the other subject that I was keen on studying, I, I could always do economics after medicine if I didn't like it, but to do medicine after economics would be challenging. So I thought I'll do medicine and see how that goes. And, and so I started it and actually I enjoyed it. What's not to enjoy? The people were fantastic. The medical school was fantastic. It was a great learning environment. It was just a great time. And but I, I spent a lot of time, my time, doing extracurricular activities as well. So of course, gamsa, something that you and I were involved in. But in addition to that, I did student politics as well. And at the time, was one of the few people to actually get involved in what was then the students' representative council, the body looks after all. I think back then, fifteen thousand students of the university and 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 getting involved in student politics. So. A lot of those things meant that by the time I was coming to the end of medical school, I was thinking to myself, actually, hang on, this is perhaps not the career path I want to pursue for the rest of my life. I enjoy it, no question, but I don't think it's all of me. I think there's other things that I want to explore and experience. So you, you moved to London and um, you worked in medicine, but then eventually you left medicine for a period and to work in finance. Uh, what was it that about working in the city that appealed to you at the time? So my other career choice when I was at university, had it not been medicine, would have been working in finance, in, in particular in London. I'd spent a lot of my childhood reading through economics and my sister, my, one of my other sisters was studying accountancy. I used to read her textbooks when she was at university. So I had a, what I felt was a decent understanding of financial services, but it was actually business that really interested me. And obviously financial services was the high end of business. Um, and so... A combination of that existing interest, a combination of having a better understanding of what medicine could offer as a career made me think that I should pursue that. So it was actually while I was at university, um, I'd applied to work for some of the large investment banks uh, in London. The, there's a process of applying, which meant that I had a bit of time so I could complete my what was then called the house jobs or FY1s as they are today. Uh, so after graduating, I did my, my house jobs in Glasgow, spent one year there in which time I sorted a job working in the city. So when I came to London, I had a six-month hiatus where I worked in hospital medicine, then I went to work in the city. And, and this was something quite phenomenal because we're talking early 2001, um, February 2001, uh, working in Canary Wharf uh, in, in London, you know, tall towers that we simply didn't see in Scotland, a very different pace of life, a very different industry. In fact, I remember my father saying to me, he said, well, what, what is banking? His vision of banking was working for RBS <laughs> and working behind the counter. And yeah. I think for a while he thought I was going to do that, which, you know, in the technical sense is called retail banking, but that wasn't investment banking, what I was into. So I had a very clear view of what I was wanted to do and why I was interested in doing it, but he didn't quite understand that. But dad's always been very supportive. And so he said, look, Imran, you seem to know what you're doing. 
go ahead and see what you can make off it. So investment banking was very different. And I think one of the biggest things that, that I discovered when I started was that how very few Muslims there were that worked in that sector, even in London, which is clearly a, a, a city which with a much, much larger Muslim population of diverse backgrounds, not just South Asians, but from the Middle East, reverts, all sorts. And despite that, in one of the leading industries for that city, there were very few Muslims that worked there. They worked in the IT part of the banks, but not actually in the banking bit, which is what I was working in. Lots of Indians, lots of people from other backgrounds, but very, very few Muslims. And gradually over time, I understood that part of that was, of course, the reluctance to work with interest-based products. A lot of people took that very personally and felt that this wasn't a career that could work for them. Even though investment banks operate in other Muslim countries, in the UK, a lot of Muslims, I think, stayed away from investment banking. And I believe that that, that by and large is how things are today as well. And how well did you adjust to that different lifestyle going from medicine to uh, working in this whole very different, you know, in the, in the movies and stuff is very cutthroat, long hours, yeah. high pressure. Was it Was it like that? It, it, it was exactly like that, actually. I, I remember very poignantly because I, I remember treating my very last patient. So by this time, it's early 2000, I'm working in London in, in an accident, an emergency unit, uh, uh, and my very last patient and my last shift before I moved to banking uh, was a homeless person. And so he had an infection of his legs and he came in for treatment of that. And of course, he'd been drinking and, and as common with homeless people, he you know, had nowhere to, to urinate. So he was smelling of urine and he, he looked very typical to a lot of these patients too. And he was my very last patient. And then the next day I was working in the city and the very first person I saw out with my colleagues and my team was a billionaire insurance businessman owner. And so he, he worked in the world of insurance and he was talking to us as the bank is one of the clients that the team had brought in to speak to us and it was just so obvious the dichotomy the difference between a homeless person and a billionaire in the same city and i'm the same person who's observed both of them and so that was a massive contrast and from there onwards it was just contrast upon contrast you know if you needed to travel somewhere it was by by, by private jet or in business class or indeed concord which was still flying in those days i had a chef who made a meal for me every lunchtime i just had to call him up and he'd he'd have it ready i had somebody who would polish my leather goods every tuesday <laughs> if i remember and i was nominated a person uh, who's uh, they were called a relationship manager or something and, and this individual's sole task was to make sure my bills were paid um to make sure i, I sent my mum flowers on mother's day all those little personal tasks that can be quite time consuming, this individual was responsible for doing that for a team of bankers. And so the contrast between the level of support that the banks offered their employees versus the NHS was profound, but also the level of wealth that you were dealing with was quite different as well. Just the, the sheer numbers, you know, they kind of made the mind boggle. In retrospect, I look back and there's a very simple reason why they were doing all of that. It's just so that you could work longer hours. It's very simple. They weren't being nice to you for the sake of being nice. They wanted you to give your pound of flesh and work for them and make sure that there was nothing to hinder that. And that's why they did that, basically. It was a completely different world. How long did you do that for? So I did that for just less than a year because September the 11th happened. So actually, I was in Canary Wharf and in New York, uh, the World Trade Center, the infamous now World Trade Center, had our company's people in there. And every morning it was our routine by about lunchtime in the UK which is about morning time in New York, we would receive a call from our colleagues in that World Trade Center office to tell us what was they were planning to do in the New York markets. We would give them an update of what had happened in the London market. So it was routine. 
in the same way, I'd come in in the morning and get a call from, from Asia as to what had happened in the Asian markets, so I could plan my day. I would get a call from New York so they could plan their day, and that's how financial cycles work, because it's one big market. And that morning, we didn't get the call, because, of course, the airplanes had flown into the building. But what was, apart from that shocking moment and how that changed the world for many, many people, and for Muslims in general, uh, the other more practical implication was that Canary Wharf was also evacuated, because at the time, the government felt there could be a similar terrorist attack at the London financial centres. And of course, Canary Wharf was the biggest part of that. So we were all evacuated. And that was the first day I ever remember leaving the office before six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> Tell us about your next item, Imran. So the next item that I'd like to take with me as a castaway is um, a hadith. Uh, and this hadith has been reported in a number of uh, different Sahih categories. Um, and it's that the trustworthy, honest Muslim merchant will be with the martyrs on the day of resurrection. And why this is relevant and, 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 and worthy of me to take onto the island is because the status of honest businessmen in, in Islam is placed extremely high. Not only was the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, a merchant, but indeed Khadija, his wife, was also a merchant. Trading was a very common practice amongst Muslims in Arabia of that age. But, but, the, but the Quran takes it beyond a step beyond that to say, well, actually, Honest businessmen, and the emphasis is on the honest, can be at the same level as martyrs. And of course, we're all familiar with how highly regarded martyrs are in the true Islamic context. And so for me, this, this helped me understand this kind of dislike I had of the current appearance of halal from a UK point of view, from a Glasgow point of view. And me as an individual now kind of entering the labor force and thinking, well, actually, what do I want to do with my life? I've left one excellent career to enter another excellent career. How is this going to shape out? What does what is my future looking like at that age? As you know, in your mid-twenties, in your career, you're really working hard to forge a path. But where was my path leading to? What was crucial about this particular hadith for me and why it comes with me is that it helped me to actually understand that business done in the Islamic context can actually be highly regarded and revered by Almighty God. And ultimately... At the end of the day, we all have to answer for what we've done. And we'll be specifically asked, what did you do in your youth? And yes, we've had an education. And yes, we might have helped people. But for me, I wanted something more than that, something different to simply saying I could do a very honorable career as a medic. And there's no question about the honor involved in that and, and how one may perceive how that could be justified in, in front of God on the Day of Judgment. But now I'm learning actually this business as well that also has a very high status. And, and so for me at this stage in my life, defining where I want to be as a human, as an individual, from a professional point of view, from a faith point of view, business was clearly ranking very high up there for me as well. And actually I could say, I could have an alternative career that's different to medicine, that is also going to be very highly regarded by God. And ultimately I'm still doing God's work. So this for me wasn't business for the sake of business. It's not any old business for me. It had to be business which espoused the word of the Quran, which spoke about Islam, and then effect, effect, effectively would be dawah for, for what we want to achieve. And so, I guess, you know, thinking about those days that you were working in Canary Wharf, and I guess 9-11, um, had that not happened, do you think you would have remained in the industry? No, no, probably not, because I think I remember having a discussion with a colleague who used to sit in the desk next to me. His name was Niall, an Irish guy who'd, who'd come across, and... Um, we were standing outside the offices one day just having a chat. I don't know, I think perhaps we'd taken a lunch break or something. And I used to say to him, you know what, the halal market is huge. And of course, by this time, I was 
becoming more familiar with London, and there were far more Muslims here than there were up in Scotland, obviously. And so the potential of a halal market and, and, and the needs of Muslims to be met was something that was real. I remember saying to Niall, there's so many Muslims in this city, there's so many Muslims in the country, but there are very few good halal offerings. And that could be a fantastic business to get into. So even back then, despite being now in my second career, and at the start of it, I'd already started thinking about, well, how could halal be converted into a business? Because it could actually fulfill many things that are important to me. And were you missing your days as a medic, as a doctor? I get asked this a lot because, of course, after my time in finance, I actually went back to medicine after 9-11 happened and the bank released a lot of people and I took the chance to leave finance to return to medicine while things calmed down a little bit. A lot of bankers lost their job at that time. Um, and so I returned to medicine. At that point, point no, I didn't return. I, I, didn't, I didn't return to medicine because I was missing it. And even though the second time I went into medicine where I specialized in intensive care and anesthesia, when I left at five or six years later, I still didn't miss it. I've always loved and enjoyed every aspect of medicine that I've done, but, um, but I've never, I, I don't miss it. I, I have no regrets. I don't believe in regrets. Um, but I don't miss it. I loved it, but I, I love what I'm doing at the moment as well. So tell us about your next item. So um, the next item is, is uh, from Surah 3 um, of the Quran, verse 185. I think uh, an ayah that many people will be familiar with. Every soul shall taste death. There are very few things that were guaranteed off in this life, but death is one of them. Uh, and this became relevant to me because after leaving banking, having spent a year or so doing that, and now returning to medicine, uh, I chose to enter a career where, or a specialty within medicine where I was experiencing patients dying on a very regular basis and many times a day. And they started off with a short stint in accident and emergency, then the, the specialization which I chose, which was anesthesia and intensive care medicine. And obviously, intensive cares and hospitals look after the sickest patients with multiple organ failure. And so for patients to die was not unusual. Literally, this would happen many times a day. And, and, and after a period of time, and as I became more reflective and the years advanced, it occurred to me that they're dying, which means the angel of death, Malakul Moth, must be present there. And so when I'd approach a patient who was obviously going to pass away, I would assume the angel of death must be standing in that room to extract the soul. So I'd say, Aslam alaikum to the angel of death, under my breath, while continuing with my activities. Uh, and this became a habit. And again, you know, witnessing death often three or four times a day. I was saying Salam. I felt like he was a part of the hospital. <laughs> he was there as, as often as I was. And, uh, and, uh, and so having a, a deeper appreciation of the finality of life, this thing that's going to happen to all of us, we can't escape it, meant that, that I, I had a, an acute sense of we need to make the most of the time we have living, and in every sense. And again, as you'll know very well, Aman, in your profession as well, things can change very rapidly for people. 
very rapidly. We all kind of start the day with an ambition of what we want to achieve. And if God's plan is as such, then that could be wiped away in an instant. So we always say, inshallah, if God wills it. And the number of times I saw young children who'd been knocked down by buses who then died, or people who were involved in big car accidents who then died, the same. none of them woke up in the morning thinking, this is how my day is going to end. But it did end that way because that's what was written for them. And so that sense that we only live once, and so we should make the most of it in terms of our relationships with people, in terms of what we want to achieve that day, in terms of understanding God has a plan and we're just part of that plan, that became very tangible and very real for me on a, on a daily basis. They say that doctors deal with seeing this death in different ways. Some people detach themselves, I guess, just so that you know they, they can get through the day because seeing a lot of death. Some people it does affect them, you know, quite emotionally, and you know they they work different ways of managing and coping with that. Yeah. I mean, how would you cope? Especially, you know, you're looking after the sickest patients yep. who are dying. How would you cope with those experiences? And was it difficult for you? Would um, you take things personally? Were you able to detach from what was going on? No, I, I think part of that, um, part of how much death you want to see as a medic comes down to your choice as to which specialty you do. So there'll be some specialties where seeing the patient dying is not what you'll see very frequently. You'll hear about them, but you won't have been there at the time when they died. And so it becomes a bit self-selecting. If you find that you can cope with witnessing death and being part of those final moments better, then you can select those specialties to be involved and if, if you're the type of individual that may find that becomes challenging you don't so witnessing death regularly what didn't burden me so much but there were some instances where it really did and, and, and that often involved the death of children particularly where the child's death was caused by non-accidental injury where it was deliberate I think then there are very few times where actually any staff member would be left without a tear in their eye whether that was tear of anger or frustration or just the injustice or the horror of what they're witnessing, that would affect everybody. And, and again, being in London, the other type of experience that we'd have is terrorist-related activities. And so there were a few times when there were a few bombs that happened in London, there'd be a major emergency that occurred and you'd see people who were just going around their daily business, not bothering anyone, and they were involved in something that, that would, would alter their lives forever. And of course, the London bombings was one of those where I was working in hospital and involved in it. So, so those instances, everyone feels it, and regardless of the nature of the injury, regardless even of the age of the patient. And, and in those instances, the hospitals, particularly the emergency departments, so those at the front line, will receive additional counselling, etc. You'll talk through what's happened, because that can be very harrowing to deal with, even for seasoned professionals. And during some of the most difficult times and some of the most difficult cases, I mean, how would you cope with that? When you after a shift and you got home, at a personal level, for me, a, a large part of, of of the strength I had in my faith allowed me to cope with those. So death is written for us, and, and as the angel of death would say in the famous hadith, "I do not come before my appointed time, and I I do not choose when to come. It's the time written by Almighty God." So, despite the disastrous circumstances in which those deaths may occur. As a Muslim, I had strong belief that this what was written for that individual. And God is the best of judges. And so I don't need to question God's decision as to why that individual, young or old, had to die in that circumstance. That's for God. That's not, that's not my discussion or my battle. For me, it's to believe that this was Almighty God's decision. I tried my best. And sometimes patients would survive when, you know, 
by all accounts, they shouldn't survive, but they do because that was God's decision. So for me, having that belief system was crucial in allowing me to comprehend what I, some of the awful things we'd sometimes witness. So take us to your next item that you, you'll take with you, Imran. Okay, so the, the next item is uh, from Surah Maida, the, the tabletop of verse 3, which is um, the, the surah which effectively for the first time describes for us as Muslims what our limitations are in terms of what we can eat. وَإِذَا حَلَلْتُمْ فَاصْطَادُوا وَلَا يَجْرِمَنَّكُمْ شَنَآنُ قَوْمٍ أَنْ صَدُّوكُمْ عَنِ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ أَنْ تَعْتَدُوا وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى وَلَا تَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْإِثْمِ وَالْعُدْوَانِ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنْ Pivotal for me about this surah, and if anything, it's probably the most pivotal surah for me, is that by this point in my career, I had decided that actually I'd enjoyed medicine, but business was my calling, and business done in the right way was a very noble cause, and Almighty Allah would appreciate that if done in the right way. But the what I was going to do was clearly going to be halal, and the context of halal, the understanding of halal, was defined in this surah. The surah goes on to explain other prohibitions on Islam, other prohibitions on Muslims with regards to who we can marry, items related to inheritance, etc. So for the first time, the surah, because it's the fifth surah of the Quran, um, actually tells us as a, as a society what our boundaries are, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. And so starts forming the, the, the core of, of, of Sharia, of what's acceptable, the straight path. So for me now, I needed to get a deeper understanding of what does the Qur'an and the associated hadith tell us about halal. And this is where halal as a concept suddenly shifts away from what we've become obsessed with in current days, which is manner of slaughter, to actually looking at the entire picture and saying, well, what are we doing as Muslims? Halal, of course, just means legal or permissible. In the context of food, we have some, some strict criteria. But actually, when you add that to the Hadith and read other parts of the Qur'an, actually, this picture emerges of 
us doing things that are permissible from the eyes of Almighty God based on the text that we're given, but truly thinking. So coming back to, to the people who think, thinking about, so truly thinking about what it is we do, why it is we do it, and then scratching the surface of the UK halal meat industry and seeing how far away we were from what the Quran and Hadith were telling us. It was a real shocker for me to understand Actually, there's so much fraud. I mean, I would estimate, and I don't think this would be an unreasonable estimate, that probably half the meat that we have eaten as Muslims in the UK was never halal in the first place. Never halal. And this is a significant proportion and probably an underestimate. So knowing the status quo, knowing how things were today, looking at how things should be from the, what the Quran tells us in every aspect of halal, there was such a wide gap, and this really bothered me. And so for me, this surah has really shaped what I think Haludis as a brand ought to deliver, what me as an individual needs to deliver. So when I, when I'm, my soul is extracted from me and I stand in front of God in the day of judgment and my scales are weighed, I can say, Almighty God, this is what you had written in your guidance to mankind and this is how I delivered it to you. And actually there's a lot of us, a lot for us as Muslims in this day and age to consider when we actually take a step back and stop become so focused and obsessed on, on method of slaughter. Yes, that's important. And I'm not minimizing the importance of that. But actually, there's so many other things that are important. And, and we've just lost grasp of controlling the situation. And that's a real problem for us today. But what about our children in the future? And how, how do we want to leave the UK when we leave or any part of the world that we're in for our children? Because they're going to be the inheritors of our decisions today. And we really need to think about that as a community. Take us on to your next item that you're going to take with you, Imran. Okay, so by this time, um, that I'm, I'm working in the pharma industry where I spent almost a, a decade and um, I'm learning a lot more about commercial life, about big business life. I've been promoted, alhamdulillah, many, many times and I was in a very senior position. And um, alhamdulillah, I'd, I'd, I'd got married as well and, and, and we were expecting our first child by this point. And so... It was a good time for me to reflect because even at this stage, I hadn't actually achieved what I truly wanted to achieve, which was my halal business. Haludis was still at this point just an idea in my mind. And, and so, you know, I was struggling to think, well, how do I actually bring this together and turn it into fruition? And, um, and that started off with an idea, which is as, as cliched as it might sound, was an idea in the shower. I thought, well, look, even if I had this mythical halal product and if I could improve halal, how would I bring it to the masses? Muslims are so disparate. We're not one ethnicity. We don't all read one magazine or follow one TV channel. It's not as simple as that. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if there was a halal food festival, a festival which at those times were very common in terms of non-halal. You could do farmers markets and big food festivals, particularly in London regularly, but there were always limitations for Muslims. And so I thought, well, why don't I do a halal one? And uh, and so that got me going to put on, as you mentioned earlier, the very first halal food festival in the country. Not only was it the first in the country, it actually never been done anywhere in the world at the time. There'd been food festivals in Muslim countries, but not ones focused solely on halal. So we that set, we set that up here in London, uh, where I met my business partner, and uh, and that was incredibly successful. At the Excel, a major venue, we had about you know fifteen to twenty thousand people over a three-day period, and the focus was on the best of halal in the UK, and and that led on to the the start of Haludis. So from September thirteen, and and I think it was in that period where yet again I was following something different, albeit this was something that was very dear to my heart, that that Rudyard Kipling's if was something that kept coming back to me, and this is of course 
uh, a very very well known poem. Um, it's I think at one point on a BBC um, best poem of the, the, the nation's best poem. I think this was selected as one of them. And uh, and there's a particular stanza in there. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors the same. Now this is just one verse from the, the from the poem, but. But actually, on reflection, this poem is something that I keep coming back to all my life because in the various verses of this, there are elements that I think actually that that he's talking to me. What he's talking about there, about if you can dream and not make dreams your master, well, that's what I was doing with Halal, arguably. I had this idea for, by this point, a decade, but it was it was controlling me. I wasn't doing anything with it until I ran the festival and then created Haludis from there. And then meeting with triumph and disaster, you know, bad things happen in your life. I'd seen that working in London with the bombings and in personal life, things happen. But actually, treat those two impostors as just, as just the same. I mean, these are profound words if you stop to think about these things. So Rudyard Kipling's If is something that I, I love reading because every time I read it, I learn something new, I observe something different, I can relate to it slightly differently. And I think is a classic that I, I hope my children one day become as as accustomed to as I have. You later went on to sell what, uh, the pharmaceutical company that you're working in and perhaps left you in a position where you don't really need to work again. <laughs> so, you know, being blessed in that way. And so, I mean, that feeling, has that changed your outlook in life and now you can choose what you want to do rather than being driven to do things for you know, financial reasons? Does that then link in with this idea of Rudyard Kipling's if and dreaming and control and who's a master are you the master of life or is life controlling you no, that, 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 that's a very deep question I think um, so you, you mentioned that the pharma company that I worked for so I left Pfizer this big blue chip pharma company that I'd been with for many years and, and I took an opportunity with a very small California based startup who had a specialism in, in, in um, making medicines for very rare lung diseases something that I'd already been doing at Pfizer and um, and so I went to work for them in, in, in London, setting up their offices over here and for Europe. And um, and after three or four years of working with the company, it was acquired by a very large company. And so um, the company was acquired and, and, and Alhamdulillah, you know, I, I did quite well financially out of that. Um, and although that meant that I, I didn't need to just do a job to make sure the income was coming in, at that point, I still hadn't decided whether actually I'd follow the halal business, partly because by this time Haludis had started, my business partner was running it, but it, I was just, you know, touching base evenings and weekends, finding I wasn't actively involved day to day. So we made a decision to get investment on board and to focus on that because I felt that this was something that now at this time in life with the position that I was in financially, but also from an experience point of view, I'd seen a lot of business by this time in my in my career, and so I felt I'd be able to make more of a success of it. So I think, so I think Kipling's if really was the dreams aspect of not letting the dream control me and it remaining a dream. Khayali Palau, as my dad would say, this mustn't be something that she just keeps bubbling away in my head, but actually is never tangible, never converts into anything. The the sale of the company meant that it was now possible for me to do it. Uh, but actually, more than that, it was more a case of I had the, cor the correct level of experience. We had the correct investors behind us. 
The market was also right at the time. I mean, you know, supermarkets hadn't touched halal for many years, but now they were more open to the idea. So a constellation of all these factors made starting and investing in the business full-time and building a team around it a lot more tangible and feasible. And do, do you still have the motivation and drive to to do these sort of things? I guess if for many people it's about, you know, the economic things in terms of work and people fantasize if I didn't need to work I'd sit on a beach all day you know so what gets you up and gives you the motivation to do this no for for me there aren't enough hours in the day if there were more hours in the day I'd work more hours a day and I'm so passionate about getting halal correct for us today and for our children in the future and not just in the UK and God willing Haludis um, will become a, a global halal brand because halal needs to improve in lots of countries you know it's our success to date has been remarkable. So just as a brief plug of the brand, Haludis and the ranges that we offer are available in more mainstream supermarkets in the UK today than any halal brand ever in the history of the UK. Really? Never before has a halal brand been in so many mainstream supermarkets. And that's not an accident. That's a lot of hard work and determination and drive, but it's still only the start because our ambition is that actually halal shouldn't just be something that's for Muslims. Actually, the values and the virtues of halal are something that non-Muslims could benefit from as well because they see what halal is about. They understand what it's about. And by being so available in mainstream supermarkets, we can access those customers as well. And so my drive is if it was high before it's it's uber high now and and the passion to improve this will not stop until i think i feel as if i've done as much as i can you know if i ever get to the point where say well i think actually i've taken haludis as far as i can we've had an impact in as much as we can and either it's now for somebody else to take over who can take it further or there isn't anything else to be done at that point i would stop and perhaps think about retiring on a beach but up until then this is very much work in progress and do you feel that because I guess essentially throughout all these years, you know, you've come across to this sort of real purpose in your life about the real reason why you're doing the halal meat industry? Do you think maybe Allah guided you in terms of opening up these opportunities to the stage where now you can do this full time? You're not it's not a side thing anymore. Um, and is that maybe a manifestation of the sincerity and the intention that you had that you wanted to do something? You know, not just for yourself, but for a wider thing. And it sounds like Allah's opened up a lot of these opportunities and doors. So now you're at your prime. You have the experience. You have the resources to to really make a difference. You know, if if I'm being romantic, I'd like to think that is the case. But I think being pragmatic and also just looking at the stories of the Sahaba who did experience losses when they had they were, they were far more obedient than I will probably ever be, and they had done far more. They'd sacrificed a lot more than I ever have been asked to. And they were they still experienced disappointment and things didn't go in the way that, that they prayed that it would. So God does things in God's way. And I'm happy to leave it at that. I think for me, I'm happy to try as hard as I can. And if Almighty El God opens opportunities because of our sincerity, because of our passion, because of our persistence, because of our drive, then I'm not going to... I'm not going to um, ignore those or, or, or not regard them for what they are. But I'm also aware that, you know, there's a plan that's bigger than Imran. There's a plan that's bigger than Haludi's going on as well. And only God knows that plan. So we, I'll go with that. We'll just keep trying as hard as we can because ultimately that's all we can do. You know, as Rudyard said, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, they're, they're both imposters. 
And I, I understand and recognize that. So even if the business stops tomorrow or the day after and we have to close up shop and I return to pharmaceuticals, then so be it. That was written by God. I, as, but I'll know I've tried my hardest and I've done what I could within the circumstances and situations. And then the rest is up to God. You mentioned earlier on that uh, during all of this, um, you married your wife, Farah, who's a GP. And she's um, slightly unique in that she's a bit of a celebrity doctor. She appears on TV, on radio. She writes in magazines. And you've got two lovely boys, mashallah. Sounds like a very busy household. Can you give me an idea of how you manage with juggling all of this? Yeah, I mean, um, Farah and I got married almost 10 years ago now. And our little boys, Suleiman and Adam, are, are... Suleiman's coming up to six, Adam's just turned four, alhamdulillah. So for anyone that's familiar with the needs of kids at that age, they're profound. Uh, and, and they're both physically tiring and emotionally tiring. And I think we're not unique in that regard as a family. You know, you have to put up with that. And of course, we love putting up with that. And Farah continues to work part-time uh, as a GP close to where we live in, in London. And... And the kids have, as kids seem to have these days, a tremendously active social life with activities and play dates and birthday parties. And so so the house is always full of, of noise and laughter, occasional crying. Um, uh, for that's usually from us, the parents. Uh, and so it, it's a busy household. We manage like every other family as, as best as we can, as hard as we can. Alhamdulillah, running my own business means that I have a bit more flexibility. Uh, in how I can manage my time and how we can make decisions. But at the same time, you know, you have to do what's needed for you in any walk of life. And just last weekend was my son's birthday, but I couldn't be there for him because uh, we had a, a work-related um, uh, engagement, which meant I couldn't be there. So these are sacrifices that I always have to make. But uh, we have a, f- a fabulous family life, and, and Farah is an absolute gem. As you said, she's very accomplished in her own right. She's a very, very strong proponent for... Um, for female health and children's health. She does a lot of work at a professional level, but also um, at a communication level to talk about um, issues that relate to women, issues that relate to women's health in particular, make it understandable for women. She's written uh, books aimed at uh, females to help them understand some of their conditions. And she does a lot of charitable work aimed at women and children and refugees as well. So she's as most mothers are for most households, uh, the, the centre of, of the, the, our universe for all the boys in the house. And do you think the way that you are with your children is that, do you think that's been impacted by your own experience? I, I, undoubtedly, although often I don't realise it, it's often only because Farah is reflecting back to me things that I do or ways that I behave um, that it becomes apparent to me. I, I'm not often aware that these things are. And yes, I think... I'm very, perhaps, maternal with my boys. I'm, I'm as much a mum to them as, as Farah's, although not not as as good as she is. Um, and to me, that's perhaps my way of, of returning back to them the loss or elements of that relationship that I didn't have. Uh, and, um, and perhaps there are other ways as well. I think all of us reflect back our experiences positive and negative uh, to our children and to those around us and uh, so I guess I'm no different in that regard but I, I love being a dad the, the boys are fantastic I think married life suits me very well and the age that I got married was right for me uh, and so yeah it's um, it, they're, they're only six and four so let's see how the next 10-15 years go and how I change with them and how they change with me so tell us about your next item that you're going to take with you so the next item will be, I guess, the, the, the sound of my kids' laughter because um, 
the two little boys seem to find the most inane things hilarious, which means that if if not one, then the other is always laughing at something or other, usually some bodily noise, but otherwise it could be <laughs> anything. Um, uh, which means that you know the, the house from the moment they wake up till the, till the, we force them into bed at night, there's there's normally a laughter, a lot of laughter and shouting. And so if I could bottle that up, I would absolutely take that with me onto the desert island as well because. As anyone, as any parent will know, uh, the sound of your children is the most comforting, is the most motivating, is the most inspiring and the most peace-giving sound there is. I think there isn't anything that you could listen to anywhere else that would relax you or make you happier than hearing your children's laughter. As we come towards the end of the interview, Imran, if you were to meet the 18-year-old Imran and give him some advice today, what would you say to him? (laughs) <laughs> it's an excellent question. I, I think for me, the, the advice would be is always stay strong to your faith because if you can understand your faith, then whatever decisions you make can be guided by it. And whatever instances happen to you, whatever things happen to you, you can put them in a context of God, whether it's success or loss. Um, if you're close to your faith and all of it makes sense, the further away you move from your faith, faith, the more you question it, the, the deeper you feel it, and the worse it becomes. So it wouldn't be anything about going to medicine or not going to medicine or going to finance or anything like that or even halal. It would be just be, stay close to your faith and God will talk to you and everything will be fine. But the moment you start edging away from it, things become massively complex very quickly. So that would be my advice to 18-year-old Imran is just stay close to your faith, everything else will be fine. So tell us about the last item that you're going to take with you on the desert island. So this, I guess, takes us back to the very first item, really. So in the month of Ramadan, it's my favorite time of year, as it is for, for many people I know. It's, um, it's that moment when you're standing in Tarawi, and it's the last Tarawi. The Quran, you know, is going to be complete that day. And uh, the Imam stands up and, and gets onto Surah An-Nas. And you know, because you know, it's the last Surah of the Quran. And... You're probably maybe two or three days before the end of the month, but it's the last surah. And for the best part of that month, for as much as you've been able to, you would have been coming to the mosque, probably the same mosque, possibly even standing in the same line for the whole month or a similar position because that's the habit of humans is to try and get to the same place with your bottle of water and the fan and the noise. And when the the imam gets to that surah an-nas, I can't help but have a tear in my eye because... It's the end of the Quran. It's the end of this best part of a month where you've, it's been physically demanding, it's been emotionally demanding, your world has been t- turned upside down because all your routines have gone out the window. And this Dharavi has been a constant throughout for as many as you've been able to manage, and now you're getting to the end of it. And so the Imam will read Surah An Nas, and, and often they're crying as well because I think the sentiment is shared amongst many people. And it feels like a farewell, it feels like a departure, it feels like a very close friend, somebody that you're so close to that their their departure affects you so, at such a deep level. And so these words coming out of the mouth of the imam evokes that sense of loss, of farewell, of, of the end of something. Malikin Nas, Ilahin Nas.
And, uh, and then you get down and, and into your, your sujood and then you stand back up again and the imam starts with Fatiha then goes straight into our bakra again and, and so we meet our bakra again this, this verse, the first few verses of which have always been a challenge to me and this is a sense of renewal a sense of actually it's not farewell yes we reached the end of the Quran and yes we're reaching the end of a very holy month a month where Muslims get together around the world and that sense of Ummah is so strong to all of us that even if you're never going to meet the brothers and sisters in Egypt or the States or Australia or Africa, you know you're all fasting together. And this, that, you know, the sense of a billion people doing that is, is palpable. And yet, saying goodbye, then being welcomed again with the Quran at the beginning to say, actually, this is not goodbye. This is a renewal. This is a, a cycle that we go around. And in life, we experience cycles. It's in nature. It's all around us. It's how we're built. And now here is another cycle, and, and, and God willing, if your Ramadan has been a good one, if you've taken the spiritual blessings, if you've managed not to get irritable with people for the whole month, if you've managed your routines well, then actually you'll take the best of those essences and continue them even after Ramadan, uh, and continue with it, and indeed continue reading the Quran, and, and, and a lot of people stop doing that once the month is over. And so for me, that moment where the, the Imam finishes Surah An-Nas, you go into sujood and start up again and start the Quran. Is a, I love that moment because it brings me to tears. It really it makes me feel so sad but so happy at the same time. The month is finishing, the Quran is finished, but everything's starting. It's like a renewal, a reemergence, and and I try and capture as much of that essence for the months, for the rest of the year until Ramadan comes over again, and try and take the best of Ramadan for the rest of the year. So that I'd, I'd like to take that sense in those surahs with me as well. Thank you. And how do you think you'll cope with the solitude and the loneliness on this desert island? <laughs> so I'm a very social person, which so this is going to be a big problem for me. <laughs> Especially do you think you would kids. struggle? Yeah, definitely. I absolutely struggle. I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person that, that, that loves the company of people. I love my own time as well, but I absolutely love the company of other people and, and, and good discussion, good debate, good laughs. Uh, but I'm also a voracious reader. I will read everything and anything. I'm the type of guy, I'll read the the side of packages, I'll read the wording on the back of a battery that nobody was ever meant to read. I'll read that. And I love reading things. And so for me, Wikipedia has been the best invention on the planet. <laughs> I, you know, Every time the message comes up, please donate, I'm happy to give my money because Wikipedia is a phenomenal resource. So I would, uh, I would like to take a whole printed out copy of Wikipedia <laughs> with me on the island and I'll be happy because I can just go through that. I love reading anything. And if you could take a luxury item, what would you take with you? Well, as you know very well, the kind of the, the authentic Desert Island disc on over on Radio 4 um, is based around music and, and uh, you know, music is a big part of my life as well. And uh, Spotify, another technological invention has given me easy access to a vast library of music so I'm not sure if I'll have internet access on this island, but I, I hope I will. And I'd like to take Spotify with me as well. Well, Imran, Kossar, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Jazakallah khair for your time. Uh, we wish you all the best in your own individual endeavours and your, in your business as well. May Allah put barakah in, in all the work that you do. And, you know, 
um, make you steadfast and continue to be a real contribution to the community, um, particularly in the UK and around the world. So please remember us in your du'as and wish you all the best um, and take it. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, Salam Zaklakha. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. Let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv.